Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles with me to that prophet Isaiah. We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Uh, We're actually in a new year. We're at the, the end of the calendar year, but it's a new year in the liturgical calendar of the church, which begins with Advent. Uh, And I love this time of year. Maybe you do as well. Just the anticipation, the expectation uh, that comes with the arrival of the Son of God. I love the atmosphere we have in worship and fellowship and the sights and sounds and all of those things, uh, time together that surround uh, the season. But we start this calendar, this liturgical calendar, with longing, with expectation. A longing that has been there throughout the course of human history, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. A longing for deliverance. A longing to see all these things that have been messed up by sin, uh, made right uh, and good again. Just a longing from the freedom and the shame that we have over our sin um, to be in the presence of our Creator God. And, And that we could stop at any number of places in the Old Testament, uh, to see where the longing and the expectation of God's people is fueled uh, throughout the ages. Uh, that, that hope for peace, a hope for rest and oppression from uh, their, their enemies. And that, that hope, that peace, that deliverance would come through a champion. It would come through a Messiah figure. One anointed by God to deliver. And we learn through the history of redemption that this Messiah would come through a specific line. Through the line of a shepherd king named David. And so the prophet Isaiah is speaking the word of the Lord to this line, to the house of David, where there remains an expectation for the Messiah. So we're going to focus over the next few weeks on what many refer to as the book of Emmanuel, chapters 7 through 12. I think, I think 6 through 12 really, really encompass this climax in chapter 9, where we learn of the sign that God will give uh, to his people. Uh, a sign that simply cannot be confused. A sign of God's uh, enduring promise to the line of David. We actually don't know much about Isaiah, surprisingly, uh, given the amount of ink we have from this prophet. Uh, in the Old Testament. Um, Some have suggested that he was a priest or a member of the royal court. Uh, Others argue that he was a scribe who was living in Jerusalem in about the the mid-750s B.C. But what we do know is that God called Isaiah in a very uh, unique way um, and then motivated by God's forgiveness of himself, he says, Lord, here am I. Use me. And God uses him in a very powerful, powerful way. I mean, one of the most illuminating prophets we have in all of history. So we're going to read just verses 10 through 16 of Isaiah 7. I'll give some more background as we go along. <clears throat> Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey 
when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. We're going to stop there this morning. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are humbled to think that you would commune with us and share with us your very heart. Lord, you've transcribed your will and your purpose through the prophet, through these words. We pray that you would teach us now, even as you conform us to the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We need your indwelling spirit to illumine this word upon our hearts and our minds. And so, that which is spoken, whatever is untrue or unhelpful, we pray that you would block that out, that it would not be remembered, that which is true and right and good, Lord, that we would meditate upon it, that you would use this word to deepen our love for you, our Savior. We pray in his name, amen. You know, moving into this season, I mentioned one of my favorites as, as the fall decorations come down, maybe they come down slowly at your house, maybe they come down very quickly, like boom, just put all everything away and everything else uh, comes out of there. But um, leaves replaced with snowflakes, pumpkins with uh, poinsettias, and all of those uh, corn stalks with lanterns now as we, as we move into this season. Uh, maybe you're also uncovering some of your favorite Christmas movies or your Christmas books. We have a stack of a Christmas books that we've just uh, uncovered. And in that stack is the, the classic by Charles Dickens, uh, Christmas Carol. It's got some fun illustrations of the ghosts of Christmas past and present and future. Uh, but the main character we know well. Um, even if we don't know the story very well, we know of Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, you don't want to be a Scrooge. right? Don't be a Scrooge this Christmas. Why do people say such things? Well, because Scrooge is a rather stingy and selfish man. He's one of these shrewd businessmen. Uh, he worked hard. He took his chances with you know, investments and built a successful uh, business in the eyes of the world. So he, he knew what it was like to, to, to earn wealth. Perhaps more importantly, to, to keep that wealth. And he was going to do all that was necessary to protect that investment. Um, so he took some chances. He wrestled with some hard decisions as, as a young boy and a man. He gambled you know, over relationships, wealth, um, thinking it would lead to greater success and greater happiness. And so we, we cringe when we think of Scrooge or hear his name, but we may be more like him than we care to admit. Do we take our chances and gamble with the ways of this world? Do we tend to trust in our own understanding or our own experience to work out our successes or to work us out of a jam? What happens when we turn from the ancient paths where the good way is? How's that going to work out for, for us and for those around us? This is what Ahaz, the king of Judah, is facing. He's deciding if he's going to take a chance. If he's going to really gamble with what seems to make sense to him, his own self-preservation and that of the kingdom, and make a pact with uh, surrounding nations. So he's going he's to counter this threat against him with a greater threat. Fight fire with fire. 
And it's right here where the prophet of the Lord, he approaches Ahaz again with a different option. There is a better way for a king in the house of David. So Isaiah has already told Ahaz not to fear, to be quiet, careful before the Lord, because that the powers of these, these threatening enemies, it's, it's going to disappear quickly. But you see, Ahaz does not have a history of trusting the Lord or of walking in faithfulness. The Lord's promises, the Lord's protection of His people has not really played into His many decisions. So he's facing multiple threats. The, the lineage of David, it's in the crosshairs. It's under threat by the Philistines in the south. So if you're looking at me as, as Israel and Judah, the Philistines are down here in the south. Then there is the growing Assyrian threat to the east. And then up north is, is Israel. We have a kingdom that is divided is Israel and the Syrians, and they've formed a pact together, and they're the ones threatening Judah and King Ahaz. But what he's done is instead of turning to the Lord and crying out for deliverance, he basically says, well, if you can't beat them, join them. We learn from 2 Kings 16 that Ahaz is ready to gamble and join forces with the Assyrians so that he can counter the threat from the north. That was the way to preserve his reign. You know, it presents another important question for us. Where do you and I turn when we feel threatened? Or maybe when we actually are threatened? by those who would oppose our, our, our values, what it is we believe as children of the Heavenly Father? Do we just take our chances with the, the majority of the population? And you know, if you can't beat them, join them sort of attitude? See how that works out? Or do we wait patiently, trusting in the protection and the care of the Lord? So the Lord is speaking through the prophet. He gives Ahaz another opportunity to turn to him to show himself a better king in the line of David. Ask for a sign, verses 10 through 13, and receive the sign that's been given, verses 14 through 16. So we're going to camp for a moment each of those sections, the asking and the receiving. When the prophet speaks, it's the Lord who is speaking. So it's the Lord himself who tells Ahaz to ask for a sign. And there is no limit to what he can ask for. It's kind of like the child's Christmas list, right? If the child wants it, you know, it could be anything from a pencil to a puppy. Let's see, well, three letters. Pencil, puppy, and a Porsche. doesn't matter. Just put it on the list. See how Santa can deliver, right? Now that's often born more out of greed than trust, which is what Ahaz is facing. Okay, the Lord has given him an opportunity. He will move heaven and earth for the sake of his people. So will Ahaz respond in trust? Okay, or is he going to keep gambling uh, with his own ideas? Faithfulness of God in delivering his people time and time again. Will he trust in that? Will he turn to that? But look how, how Ahaz responds, verse 12. No, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, which sounds very spiritually or spiritual when we when we read it. But here it's a belly full of baloney. Now we read in places like 
Psalm 95 of Israel's rebellion, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So there is sin in putting God to the test, and it's a sin of unbelief. When God's people test Him, it shows that they're not, they're not trusting Him, but they're actually doubting His power and His ability to do what He says He will do. I'll trust God if He shows Himself worthy to be trusted. That's not the actions of, of faith. When God tests His people, it's to get their attention. He actually you know, draws them closer that they would really trust Him. So he tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, but Ahaz says, no, I'm going to continue in willful unbelief. I don't want to be careful and quiet before the Lord. I don't want to believe. I'm going to play my own cards here. How wearisome this is to the Lord. Verse 13, it's like a snapshot of all of Israel's history. Their rebellion against God, failing to, to live up to His intended purpose for them unwilling to listen, uh, to seek Him. You know, we're, we're getting a sense of this you know, weariness and exhaustion you know, with all these restrictions that have come in this age of coronavirus. I know we are. I've talked to, to many of you about this, empathized with you over this. Uh, some restrictions we understand, some we don't. There's little consensus, and so it's wearisome. Enough already, right? We're weary of this. And to grow weary and exhausted ourselves or to exhaust the patience of other people, that's one thing. But to exhaust the patience of God is another. Why? Because God is all patient. He's as patient as anyone can be. So to exhaust that patience would be really hard to even think about it in that terms that it's even possible should catch our attention. To grab the attention of Ahaz and the people of Judah. This is not the way. It's a dangerous way of unbelief. So Ahaz may sound uh, spiritual, but it's an empty excuse. He doesn't want to exercise faith or really engage uh, spiritually when there is this threat against him. Again, what, what do you believe is threatening to you right now or threatening to us right now? What distractions are we facing where we might be, be tempted to say, I'm going to play my own cards. I'll, I'll plan the work you know, and work the plan, right? But without faith, without trusting God and, and leaning into His promises, where do we turn? Okay, what's your immediate response? Is it God is with me? God is with us? Or is it simply, well, let's work harder, let's restructure, let's work more, let's recount, whatever. One commentator says, whatever we rely on instead of trusting God will eventually devour us. So for Ahaz and the people, the main issue here, it's not a political issue and who they are going to align with when. This is, this is a spiritual issue. It's an issue of faith. You think God's people need to hear that message today? Our primary concern is not political or economic or even social, but spiritual. It's giving attention to and exercising our faith. So we could, we could boil that all down very simply. Is our salvation and hope by works and compromise with 
you know, the latest uh, systems or policies or, or leaders, whoever we find ourselves with? Or is it by faith in the work of God and His promises uh, to us? You see, the Lord, the Lord requires that His people walk in faith. Walk by faith, not by sight, the Apostle Paul says. Because it is, it's what's best for us. For creatures, image bearers of God. And God loves to validate this. He wants us to trust Him and depend upon Him. You maybe remember uh, Gideon in Judges chapter 7. He's ready to move against the Midianites. And he's ready to go with at least 30,000 troops to fight the Midianites. But the Lord comes again and He says, no, no, that's too many. You may be tempted to think you have the ability to, to win this battle. That's not going to work. And so the Lord gives Gideon some uh, restrictions, weeds out uh, the amount of men that he had with him, and now it's down to 10,000. Uh, no, too many, Gideon. You know, if, if I dare put thoughts into the mind of God, he's thinking, do they trust me? Do they have some idea of who I am for them? They believe I can do this for them? Too many, Gideon. You know what? Bring, those ten, bring them down to the river. And those that get down on their knees and they lap the water like dogs, send them home. Those who bring up the water to their mouths... Keep them. Uh, Lord, that's only 300 men. Perfect. Take them. They must trust Him. Jesus stood with His disciples, teaching, teaching them, teaching the crowds. Matthew 14, Mark 6. It's getting late. The crowds are tired. They're hungry. So the disciples make the suggestion to Jesus. Jesus Send them home. Give them something to eat. They need something to eat. Um, again, the, the thoughts of Jesus. Do they trust me? Are they, are they hearing what I've been teaching about all day long? Um, who I really am? Peter, come here. James, John, Matthew, other James, come here. You give them something to eat. You feed them. Jesus knows what He's going to do. But what are they going to do? Will they turn to Him? Uh, Jesus, there are thousands of people here. We have five loaves and two fish. Perfect. Let me see them. They have to trust. The Lord loves to test and confirm our trust in Him. And you know what? He knows what He's going to do. He knows what He's going to do in your life today and tomorrow until you breathe your last. He knows what He's going to do. What are you and I going to do? How are we going to respond to the power and provision of God? So let's keep asking ourselves and assuring ourselves of the answer. Can the Lord be trusted to do what His Word promises? We exercise faith as individuals, and yet our faith is not just an individual exercise. You know, for Isaiah, really for all the prophets, uh, faith, is, faith is widespread. Faith is like national policy. Okay? Calling on the Lord, trusting Him, that's the responsibility and privilege of all of God's people. 
with, with the king at the helm, leading the way. It's a corporate faith. So, you know, think about that. What might that look like, you know, for us and our responses to, you know, the shifting sands around us? Okay, we're not driven by fear. We're not driven by self-preservation as the king of Judah is here. Um, you know, some of us are, you know, we're wrestling with how much time to spend with uh, family and friends around us. We're, we're, we're thinking about whether we should travel, what that should look like. Um, and that's a good wrestling. We need to, we need to take that before the Lord uh, in prayer, uh, asking for wisdom uh, in that moment. Um, something that, that we need to do. Um, but does our corporate faith enable us to trust God for ourselves and for those we love the most? Um, now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. But do hear what I'm saying. There may be things more dangerous, more detrimental to a life of faith than contracting a virus that we can't control that will continue to spread. Um, trusting the Lord for ourselves and for those we love to provide, protect, confident of His presence with us. So ask for a sign. Ahaz didn't ask, but he received one anyway. All the people received the signs. There are two audiences here, consequently two messages. Okay, one for the people as a whole, for the whole house of David, verses 14 and 15, and then the word directly to Ahaz in verse 16. So what does this mean? That a virgin would conceive and bear a son. His name would be called Emmanuel. It has to mean something for Ahaz in 730 B.C., even though it doesn't find its complete fulfillment you know, for another 700 years. Interesting how Isaiah says nothing about a time in this prophecy. He does this more often. It's one of his prophetic techniques. And that's, that's what makes us challenging in interpreting this sign. I'm certainly in the camp that you know, this is one child being referred to, not one child that was born in 732 B.C. and another born in 4 B.C. in Bethlehem. Two audiences, two messages given through the one sign. And the message to Ahaz is that the people of Judah, they're going to be delivered. And they're going to be delivered soon, before this child is born and reaches that age of decision-making, of making moral choices. So you know you're about three to four years. This threat to Ahaz will be eliminated. Again, history shows us that it was within three years that Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, was overrun by the Assyrians. They were no longer a threat. And about a decade later, Samaria, the capital of Israel, is also taken by the Assyrians. So Ahaz does not need to fear. Okay, he, should, he should not let his heart grow faint because God is with him. God's presence, God with him is the guarantee of victory. And that's been the battle cry of God's people through the ages. The Lord is with us. How about for Joshua? Hear him cry that with, with the people in numbers. Or we go to Psalm 46, which we've looked at in this last year. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So even when the Assyrians, even when they, they set their sights on Judah, their plans are foiled. They will be broken because of Emmanuel. That's the next chapter, chapter 8. Do not fear. The Lord is with you, Ahaz. And the second message, it calls to mind just the faithfulness of God 
to his people, to the line of David. Through that, that royal line, he is present with the people. And we find that covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. His son Solomon, whose experience we've been following in Ecclesiastes, he stated this promise in 1 Kings 8. But none of these kings within the line of David, none of them can take the Lord's presence for granted. If the Lord does not go with His people, if they do not respond to Him in obedience, they're finished. They're toast. And so the house of David is really facing a a, a two-pronged threat here. There's the external threat of the nations, but there's also an internal threat. There's a threat of unbelief, of unfaithfulness, disloyalty among David's heirs. This is a real problem. That means if Judah is going to be delivered... If the house of David is going to be spared, it will only be because God is faithful to that covenant. Even though His people reject Him, He will send a sign at the appointed time. And so we read in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, we learn of the appointed time in Matthew 1.23. The virgin Mary will bear a son and call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. So the promise of Emmanuel is a saving promise. In the context it was given, and a saving promise to us. The sign is a Savior. Have you ever heard a sign actually save you? You There's a sign that that warns us. I had one again this last week. Big yellow sign, you know, dangerous curve ahead. It's a good thing I slowed down or I wouldn't have made it all the way around that thing. So the signs warn us but this sign, this, this child doesn't just warn us, this child saves us. So God shows His faithfulness to the house of David yet again. His faithfulness to you and me as His people. The holy nation, kingdom of priests who are God. So Ebenezer Scrooge, back to him, he took a chance. He gambled with all of the wealth he could get his hands on following greed, self-absorption in his own heart. But in the end, he's shown the emptiness of this. You know, the, the misery of these types of pursuits. But Scrooge is given another chance. You know, he wakes up from this nightmare. He can change his ways. It's not too late you know, to show kindness and, and generosity. King Ahaz, the house of David, God's chosen people are given another chance. Another opportunity to trust the Lord, to show themselves faithful. Yet they see and do not perceive. They hear and they do not understand. So God must give them a sign to keep this covenant intact. And that's the sign that endures today. A sign of God's deliverance from all the threats that we will ever face. Sin from without and sin from within. And we'll go right off the cliff unless, unless this sign saves us. A sign that will bear our sin and free us from pain, sorrow, despair. And as we've been learning in Ecclesiastes, the Creator has put that everlasting sense in all of us. A longing for this freedom. A longing for peace. A longing for some stability and satisfaction and fullness of joy. Come thou long expected Jesus. 
Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. That's our longing. And maybe we should be more like Scrooge. Not the selfishness and the greed, but in repentance and kindness and generosity. For such generosity that's been shown to us through the coming of Emmanuel. See, the Lord, is, the Lord will move heaven and earth. He does so for the sake of His people. And He has done that through the giving of His Son. So church family, may we see the sign. May we see the sign and believe. May we see the sign again this Advent season and be comforted. May we, may we see the sign you know, anew and, and turn to the Lord. Showing ourselves faithful um, to the One who is with us. So this sign, this child is the faithful One. The righteous King in the line of David. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. In this King. And it's in Him and it's through Him that we utter our Amen to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we can say Amen, so let it be. For Christ has come. And our longing is still, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Lord, you have come once to deal with our sin. And you are coming again to judge the living and the dead, to call us home. Lord, we pray in this season of expectation, this season of anticipation and joy, that we would see the light of the world, the light of Christ, this sign that has come going before us, shining in the midst of our darkness, filling us with hope for that coming day. We thank You for this Word in Christ's name. Amen.